You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother was Jedidah, the, the daughter of Adiah, Boskath. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn away from what was doing right. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent Shepan, son of Azaliah and grandson of Mesulam, the court secretary, to the temple of the Lord. He told him, go to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him count the money the gatekeepers have collected from the people at the Lord's temple. Entrust this money to the men assigned to supervise the restoration of the Lord's temple. Then they can use it to pay workers to repair the temple. They will need to hire carpenters, builders, and masons. Also have them buy the timber and the finished stone needed to repair the temple. But don't require the construction supervisors to keep account of the money they receive, for they are honest and trustworthy men. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan, and he read it. Now Shaphan went to the king and reported, Your officials have turned over the money collected at the temple of the Lord to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Shaphan also told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll. So Shaphan read it to the king. When the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. Then he gave those orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akbar, son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the court secretary, and Asaiah, the king's personal advisor. Go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah. Inquire about the words written in this scroll that has been found. For the Lord's great anger is burning against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words in this scroll. We have not been doing everything it says that we must do. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbar, Shaphan, and Asaiah went to the new quarter of Jerusalem to consult with the prophet Huldah. She was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, son of Haras, the keeper of the temple wardrobe. She said to them, The Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Go back and tell the man who sent you, This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this city and its people. All the words written in the scroll that the king of Judah has read will come true. For my people have abandoned me and offered sacrifices to pagan gods, and I am very angry with them for everything that they have done. My anger will burn against this place, and it will not be quenched. But go to the king of Judah who sent you to seek the Lord and tell him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the message you have just heard. You were sorry and humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I said against this city and its people, that this land would be cursed and become desolate. You tore your clothing in despair and wept before me in repentance. And I have indeed heard you, says the Lord. So I will not send the promised disaster until after you have died and been buried in peace. You will not see the disaster I am going to bring on this city. So they took her message back to the king. Then the king summoned all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the temple of the Lord with all the people of Judah and Jerusalem, along with the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. There the king read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. 
the king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all his commands, laws, and decrees with all his heart and soul. In this way, he confirmed all the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll, and all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Then the king instructed Hilkiah the high priest and the priest of the second rank and the temple gatekeepers to remove from the Lord's temple all the articles that were used to worship, Baal, Asherah, and all the powers of the heavens. The king had all these things burned outside of Jerusalem on the terraces of the Kidron Valley, and he carried the ashes away to Bethel. Then Josiah demolished all the buildings at the pagan shrines in the towns of Samaria, just as he had done at Bethel. They had been built by the various kings of Israel and had made the Lord very angry. He executed the priests of the pagan shrines on their own altars, and he burned human bones on the altars to desecrate them. Finally, he returned to Jerusalem. King Josiah then issued this order to all the people. You must celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as required in this book of the covenant. There had not been a Passover celebration like that since the time when the judges ruled in Israel, nor throughout all the years of the kings of Israel and Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah's reign, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Josiah also got rid of the mediums and the psychics, the household gods, the idols, and every other kind of detestable practice, both in Jerusalem and throughout the land of Judah. He did this in obedience to the laws written in the scroll that Hilkiah the priest had found in the Lord's temple. Never before had there been a king like Josiah, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and soul and strength, obeying the laws of Moses, and there's never been a king like him since. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Hope you're well. We are continuing in our series looking at God behind the scenes. This idea came from our time where we spent in the book of Esther. As you guys know, we spoke before, Esther is the only book of the Bible that God isn't mentioned once in. Intentional literary device to show that God is working behind the scenes. And we're now taking this point, this idea further, and sharing a few Old Testament stories illustrating the same point. This will actually cover uh, large periods of redemptive history, so you're going to get a lot of span of time from the judges to the exile. Last week we saw God in the birth of Samuel to Hannah. Today we're talking about the person my son is named after, King Josiah. It's a cool name, I know. Before we get to this, let me give you a quick history and an overview of the book of of Kings. So I hope hope you guys like history. If you don't, bear with me. This is good stuff. And guys, let me tell you, when it gets to the points in the Bible where there's a lot of history and you're like, oh, so much history, these are just names. Can I tell you, there is significance in the history in the Bible as well. Although the two separate books, First and Second Kings, uh, in, in our Bible there are two separate books, they were originally one book telling a unified story uh, that continued from the book of Samuel. This is where David has unified the tribes of Israel into one nation, one kingdom. And God promised from his line would come a messianic king who would establish God's kingdom over the nations and fulfill all of his promises. So the book of Kings tells the story of this long line of kings that came after David. None live up to the promise. As a matter of fact, most of these kings run the kingdom into the ground. The book is designed to have five main movements. It begins and ends in Jerusalem. It starts with Solomon reigning and building the, the temple. 
It ends with the destruction of the temple and the exile of the Jews into Babylon. In the middle has Israel splitting into two rival kingdoms, the northern kingdom, or Israel, or the southern, and the southern kingdom, Judah. And it has a part where God tries to prevent corruption by sending the prophets. And then it shows how exile is unavoidable consequences of Israel's sin. The first two chapters about the kingdom is, is about the kingdom passing from David to Solomon. David calls to Solomon, brings him up to him, and says, Solomon, you're called to be king. You're going to be the next king, and you're called to be a faithful, remain a faithful king, which is kind of ironic because in the, book, in the first book of Kings, right after David calls Solomon to be faithful, he does actually very unfaithful things with Solomon to secure his kingship. Solomon becomes king. And he does, his greatest moment came when he, God said to Solomon, Solomon, what do you want? What, what would you want from me? And Solomon says, I want wisdom to govern my people well. That was his greatest moment. He gets wisdom. He rules, expands the kingdom, and then he builds up the temple. But then Solomon starts making some terrible mistakes. He marries women from all over the world, hundreds of different women from all these different kingdoms because he wants to secure his ruling, his land, his, his empire. He institutes their religions. He builds up and hoards wealth. He builds up his army and even starts slave labor. If you look at Deuteronomy 17, Solomon basically breaks every guideline that Deuteronomy set up for what a good king was supposed to be. To the point, actually, by the time Solomon's, king, Solomon's reign came towards his end, he looked more like Pharaoh, where the people escaped from, where people escaped from slavery out of. He resembled more Pharaoh than he did a king of Israel. So after, after Solomon, Rehoboam comes, and he's just like Solomon, greed and lust for power, increases taxes because he wants more slave labor. He, under Jeroboam, though, the northern kingdom decides to revolt. So all of a sudden, under Jeroboam and Rehoboam, they're separate kingdoms, and the northern kingdom comes, create their capital in Samaria. Jeroboam, in the northern kingdom, becomes king. He builds two new temples to compete with uh, the southern kingdom. He puts a golden calf in front of each kingdom, which you know that's just never a good idea. Read Exodus if you don't know that. Now the rest of kings goes back and forth. The story goes back and forth, back and forth from the north to the south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had 20 successive kings. So this is a long period of history, 20 kings. The, the writer of kings evaluates each of the kings. He evaluates them, are they following God? Are they doing the will of God? Are they keeping the covenant? So he evaluates each of the kings. In the, in the northern kingdom, how many good kings, anybody? Zero. Zero for 20. Every one of the northern kings, the, the, the author of the book of Kings says, they were not a good king. Zero for 20. In the southern, trivia question, how many good kings? One? Eight? Eric is correct. If you're not sure, just go with what Eric says. Eight is right. Good job, Eric. Did you look at my notes or did you already know this? I don't know if I did. Eight. So from the northern kingdom, there were zero good kings, zero for 20. In the southern kingdom, there was eight. Eight out of 20 kings were considered good. Incredible. But this also connects the purposes of introducing the role of prophets. See, prophets were not fortune tellers. That's what people think. Prophets were not walking around being like, you are gonna be a millionaire. You are gonna have calves, and you are gonna marry this person. No, prophets of this time, prophets in the world prophets, were to speak on the behalf of God. And they were covenant watchdogs. They called out idolatry. They called out injustice. They constantly reminded Israel to be a light to the nations and to obey the words of the Torah. 
That's what a prophet's, prophet was. That's what a prophet's role is. So throughout this whole book of Kings, as we see these zero for 20, as we see eight for 20, what we're seeing is the, the role of prophets being made prominent, specifically in the northern kingdom. As a matter of fact, most of the book of Kings um, spends his time on these two prophets in the northern kingdom named Elijah and Elisha. They were covenant watchdogs. They called out King Ahab and said, Ahab, what are you doing, man? Quit messing up. That's the exact wording. They said, are you keeping to the covenant? Are you being faithful to the people? Are you showing justice? And most of the time their answers were, no, you're not. So you need to do better. That's what the role of the prophet was. Ultimately, the prophets were unsuccessful. The kings were, once again, zero for 20. So Jehu started a bloody revolution. Coup follows coup. Second Kings 17, Assyria finally conquers the northern kingdom. Samaria is conquered and the Israelites are exiled. Now chapter 17 is very key here. The author stops the story in chapter 17 and offers this prophetic reflection on what happened. He basically blames the downfall on the idolatry and the covenant unfaithfulness of the people, of the kings. He says they've gone too far and will suffer from their, for, their un, for their covenant unfaithfulness. So second kings, all this is done, all this is happening, Elijah and Elisha has happened, and basically they're conquered, the northern kingdom's conquered. The southern kingdom's not conquered yet, but it will be. But it's conquered because of the un, covenant unfaithfulness of the people. Then Hezekiah comes, which is really cool, because really cool, actually a good king, but like he institutes all this change in seven weeks. Then Manasseh comes, he's the worst, child sacrifice. Then comes Josiah. Josiah's father was Amon. His grandfather was Manasseh, the really bad king. His great-grandfather was Hezekiah, the cool king. So just in case you need to know, if you want to name your kid after one of these cool Bible names, Hezekiah is a good one. Manasseh, not a good one. Just keeping track. I don't want you to mess up one day and be like, Manasseh, that's a good name. That's a bad king. No. <laughs> All right? Just remember this. That is kind of cool to name kids with cool Bible character names. I'm just saying. If you ever name your kid Melchizedek, that's mine too. I'm still saving that. Don't do it. Melchizedek. Jesus said no, but still. During the days leading up to Hezekiah, there was 150 years of apostasy in the southern kingdom. Baal worship and child sacrifices at the temple. And this all turned around in seven weeks because of Hezekiah's leadership. This was a lightning strike of revival, a short time of revival that God sometimes brings. God can bring a long period of revival. He can bring a short period of revival. But all was cleansed in seven weeks. The priesthood was brought back and did the work. The temples were back opened. They were taking care of the, of the covenant, following, praise was going up to God. But then literally just a short time later, the worst king came, Manasseh, and where he for 20 years led the nation, descended into idolatry and temple prostitution and um, perversions and worship and false worship and child sacrifices. It, it multiplied in the days of Manasseh. But then God brought a king named Josiah. But before that happened, 1 Kings 13, 1 and 2 says this, By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel, as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. By the word of the Lord, he cried out against the altar, 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 this is what the Lord says, A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. Written, this prophecy was written hundreds of years before Josiah was born. Josiah comes to his reign at the age of eight. By the time he reached 16, God, mind you guys, can you imagine that? An eight-year-old being king? I mean, if an eight-year-old became king now, there'd be like pudding everywhere and ice cream. All, we should make an eight-year-old king. 
It's a good idea. <laughs> but by the time he reached 16, it was noted that he followed after his father David. Not, not his actual father, but in the line of David, that he was more like David than his actual father. He obeyed the Lord and lived under the eye of the Lord. He was a man pursuing holiness and godliness from age eight and developed by the age of 16 to be known as a man, not like his father or his grandfather, who did not walk in the ways of the Lord, but who walked in the ways of David. What does that mean? So David was not a perfect man. He was a great, great sinner. He committed atrocious sin, but he was a great repenter. David believed in the greatness of God's grace. That grace forgave and transformed him. This is what it means to be great in the eyes of God. Listen to me very clearly. What it means to be great in the eyes of God and what it means to walk in the worthiest of manners is not that you're perfect. It means that you know how desperately you need his grace. Do you hear that? It's to know that you are sinful and you know how deeply you need the grace of God and that transforms you. That's the testimony of David, and that becomes synonymous with Josiah. He was most noteworthy for walking under the eye of the Lord, and because of that grace, because that grace transformed him, he knew now which way to turn, whether to the left or to the right. He was a man who knew the Lord and walked with the Lord, and by age 16, that's what they said about him. Guys, can I tell you something? I would love it. By the end of my life, that could be a statement about me. I would love it, man. I don't want to say, oh, Lawrence, he invented... I don't know, guacamole. <laughs> It'd be cool if I invented guacamole. But I'd much rather at the end of my life be known as a man who walked after, a man who walked in the line of David, a man who was a worthy manner, who lived a worthy way. Not because everybody could look at my life and know that, man, that guy is not perfect by any means. But he knows how desperately he needs God's grace, and it transformed him. When we get to the 12th year of his reign at age 20, it becomes noteworthy that he starts to destroy all the idols. He beats the plea to destroy them. It's a clear declaration for him that he's saying he's condemning false worship. He's pulverizing. He's not just saying, let's get rid of the idols. He's literally pulverizing them. And by the time he is 26, in the 18th year of his reign, he now turns from destroying to start doing. Instead of destroying, he starts building. He unboards, he cleans, he clears, he consecrates the temple like in the days of Hezekiah. He restores the Levites back to their right role in the temple. He sends out messages to everyone everywhere. He said to them, come, bring your resources. He noticed it said in the scripture that we read, the gatekeepers collected the resources from the people. He says, contribute, come back, restore the temple. Restore what was lost, come back. So people started to come back to the temple to worship rightly and not falsely. He establishes, like Hezekiah, the Passover because it's a reminder of God's grace and mercy to his people. That even though they were unfaithful and oppressed, God put a substitutionary sacrifice in their place so that the wrath of God, the angel of death, passed over them. I love that he brought back the Passover. Because what it means for us this side of the cross. For those of us who know that this glorious feast that anticipates Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it became a central point of their worship again. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, he's commissioning his people to restore the temple. Funds are abundant. He's saying, don't worry about counting the money. We got trustworthy people. They're gonna build it and they're gonna do well. Pay the carpenters, pay the workmen. He goes and he says this in 2 Kings 22, 8 through 13. Hilkiah the high priest said this. I'm not gonna read the whole thing actually, but just because there was a good amount of scripture read earlier. But basically he tells to rebuild the temple and when the temple, the, his secretary goes, talks to the high priest and the high priest says, look what I found. 
I found the word of God, the law of God. And so they read it to him. And when he read it, Josiah hears it and he tears his clothes at the reading of the book as a sign of repentance, which I had never understood that. You know, I was like, that's not the first instinct is to tear my clothes. I, th- I picture Hulk Hogan. Anybody? Shout, age you guys. You guys are like, who? Hulk Hogan, you guys know? Thank you, thank you guys. Yeah, well, I can start doing <laughs> But um, Hulk Hogan always had this yellow shirt jersey thing that he'd always tear. That's what I picture when I think of this. But the idea is, why rend your clothes? Why tear your clothing? Literally, it was a sign that says of, of remorse, of repentance. I'm like, woe is me, destroy me, rend me, tear me apart. <clears throat> and that's what Josiah did. He said, he heard the word of the Lord. He heard the law, the reading of the law, and it just, it, it just, tore him apart, he humbled himself, he tore his clothes and said, what are we doing? And here they are, they're using all these resources to cleanse, repair, and enlarge the temple for this restored God worship, and it's an incredible movement, incredible time, and God gives them an even bigger treasure. In this movement of restoring temple worship, restoring what was right, God gives them the word that they lost. So what book did they discover here, right? It says they discovered the law of the Lord that was given through Moses. So what does that mean, anybody? The law of the Lord given to Moses. It could mean a couple things. Number one, it could be talking about the first five books, often called the Book of Moses, or the books of Moses, or the law of Moses, or the Pentateuch. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these beautiful books. They're discovered where they ought to be in the house of the Lord. And when this is read to Josiah, this exposes God's judgment upon us for what's because of the evil we have done. Now, it doesn't have to necessarily be all five of those books. It could literally just be the Book of Deuteronomy often also referred to as the law. Some scholars believe it just was the book of Deuteronomy, actually. But isn't that, wouldn't that be a little crazy? How, like, honestly, be honest with me. How many of you read the whole book of Deuteronomy? Okay, good job. How many read it twice on purpose? <laughs> okay, can be, just be honest, be, be, be real with me. You don't have to, there's no judgment here. But how many of you guys read the book of Deuteronomy and were led to almost rend your clothing, go, woe is me, and were just so moved to tears by it? Not many, right? I'll be honest with you, me either. It was difficult reading for me. But Josiah read it, tore his robes, and openly wept over the words of the law. The words moved him because it was real to him. See, often, guys, when we read the book of Deuteronomy, we don't realize that this is true covenant promise in a real life situation to the people of Israel said, this is me, this book was meant for me, this was word was meant for me. We often don't read it like that. Guys, the, my main point, one of the main points I want you to get this morning, number one, is the word of God is evidence of God working behind the scenes. First point, the word of God is evidence of God working behind the scenes. Our theme right now, as you heard, is God was working, God is moving, God is moving behind the scenes, working behind the scenes. The preserved, everlasting, life-changing word of God is evidence of this. Do you guys know what a miracle it is that we have the word of God? Do you guys get that? It should not be. It should not be. I mean, how in the world, from one part of the world, do we get the word of God? How do we get it preserved so well? How do we get it so perfect to what it was original state it's in? Only by the grace of God. Guys, do you understand, we went through a period called the Dark Ages. Literally, the Dark Ages was one of the worst periods in history where literature, writing, science, advancement, plague, it was rampant. Nobody cared about the word, but for some reason, God saved a remnant. This is him moving behind the scenes. Guys, the word was preserved, even though the temple was boarded up, 
and condemned as a place of worship. Nobody went to the temple anymore. It was boarded up. It was desecrated. It was destroyed. Yet there was the word saved. Do you see that? The word was gifted to the king as he sought to do what was right in the eyes of God. Do you understand? As, as the king was trying to understand what good worship was again, as he was trying to open up the place of worship, at the perfect time, God gave him the word, let it hit him to the heart, and led to incredible revival. This led to renewal and revival in the nation. Do you feel that God is quiet and not moving in your life right now? Read his word. Let me say that again. Do you feel that sometimes in your life that God is quiet and not moving? You don't feel like God's doing anything. Sometimes you feel like your worship is stale and stagnant. Guys, can I tell you, read his word. Because even in the silence, even in the feelings of far away, God is speaking and changing lives through his word. Jen Wilkins says this, we must make a study of our God. What he loves, what he hates, how he speaks and acts. We cannot imitate a God whose features and habits we have never learned. We must make a study of him if we want to become like him. We must seek his face. Guys, there are times that I'm, and I love what I love about this series, is there are times in your life when you don't feel God is near, right? And I think there's an intentionality to this. There's intentionality to like, right now, if God wanted to, he can lead you in every path and every decision, everywhere you go with a big pillar of fire. You're like, oh God, where should I go? Oh, there's a fire, I'll follow that, right? Wouldn't that be easy? You're like, God, why don't you do this? I don't know what job to take sometimes. I don't know what decision to make sometimes. I don't know who to date sometimes. I don't know what clothes, I don't even know how to pick out an outfit in the morning. It'd be so much easier, God, if we just had a pillar of fire, like, ooh, this, do this. That'd be so much easier. But there are seasons of our life, we see, even throughout Scripture and redemptive history, there are seasons of our life where God is intentionally quiet, but he gives us his word. But he's intentionally quiet for a reason. Because he wants us to see him moving behind the scenes so that our faith is built up in it. Do you see that? So we can learn to trust him even when we don't see the big displays, we know that the constant love is there. Even when the constant displays of my buying flowers for my wife or an instrument for my wife or gushing, saying I love you so much, know that she's, she's secure in my quiet love. That's always there. There's a song I wanna play for you guys and I mentioned this song, it's called Faithful by a lady named Brooke Fazer. And it's a song that my wife um, had it, we had it uh, played at our, our wedding. Uh, I didn't have it played, we had somebody play it. And uh, as we play this song, what I'd like for you guys to do is I'd like you to listen to the words, the lyrics are gonna be up there, and I'd like for you to, I was gonna continue talking, but. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, I'd like for you guys to hear the words, meditate on the words, but I'd also like for you guys to think, what, what do you do in the times when God is quiet and you, see him, you feel like he is behind the scenes and not active and up front? I'd like for you guys to take some time to pray as you listen to the words and say, God, am I still pursuing you? Are you doing something in me in this? What are you showing me? I'd like for you to take this time as you're listening to the song and hearing the words and reading the words to think maybe you can relate to this and maybe saying, God, what do you want me to do in this time and in this season? So let's listen to this real quick.
I love that song, by the way. It's a good one. The, the beauty of knowing that God is working behind the scenes, trusting that his word is an ex- example of that, yeah, it makes us more faithful. We can trust and know that he is good and he is always working and always there. Number two, the unerring word of God gives us solid assurance. I mentioned earlier the prophecy given in 1 Kings 13 about the coming of Josiah was given 300 years before Josiah's reign. The writer of this part of Kings is saying, there you have it. Josiah has exactly fulfilled that prophecy from 300 years ago. God's word never fails. It has infallibly come true. This prophetic fulfillment packs this incredible, solid assurance. In the context of the reign of Josiah, it allows people to think, if God's century-old prophecy, centuries-old prophecy so clearly came to pass, then shouldn't we also have hope in all of his other promises? This prophecy of Josiah's purging and revival carries the promises of still more. I want you to get this. What we see in Josiah's fulfillment are signals of something more to come. I love Marvel movies. I'll throw that out there. Most of you guys already know this. Big fan of Marvel movies. One of my favorite things about Marvel movies is I'm the nerd who stays for the whole credits. You know, you watch the movies, you sit in the credits, and, it's, and by the way, credits are long. I don't know what, it's like 15 minutes. Like, seriously, you can hear like t- 10 songs. It's, I can't believe how long they are. But I stay through all the credits, no matter how long they are. Do you guys know why? Because before Avengers came out, it was always a teaser of something bigger coming. And he's like, oh, what is that at the end of that one? What is that? Is that the Tesseract? What's, what's, what's going on here? And you're sitting here, and you're, every time there's one comes out, it was always like, oh, another movie's coming out. Another movie's coming out. Another, a new character's going to come out. And a new character, and they're going to bring them all together. And in one movie together, you're like, what? And your mind gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You get more and more excited. It was a sign of something to come. Guys, hear me very well when I say this. Josiah is just like that. The book of 1 Kings is just like that. He signals that there is another son of David to come who will do Josiah-like work among the people of God. Refining, purifying, reviving. This second Josiah is named Jesus. Jesus came as fulfillment to the prophecy, not just one prophecy like Josiah, but countless. And while Josiah tried to restore the temple, Jesus made the new temple. Or while Josiah tried to restore the temple, Jesus made a new temple. While Josiah tried to bring people back to God, Jesus ultimately brought people back to God through his death on the cross. Guys, I want you to see that. I want you to look at the story of Josiah, see the faithfulness and the inerrancy of this word, and give this solid assurance that this is just a signal, a sign that something greater was coming. That the author of the book of Kings said, guys, guys, Josiah is great. We've had eight good kings, and Josiah was awesome, but he's just a small taste, a small look at this coming king. He's just one character in the story of Avengers. The Avengers is Jesus. Did you get that? He's all the Avengers. He's like Voltron. It's awesome. What Jesus is, is God, I want you to hear this, is that he's the full fulfillment, the final fulfillment of all the promises that were given all throughout the, all the books of the Old Testament. Where Josiah is here and he says, we rediscovered law, we'll turn our people back, we'll rebuild the temple. Where Jesus says, no, no, I'm the ultimate temple. This one can never be broken. And he gives us something brand new. He ultimately restores our relationship with God. He's the promised king that we needed. 
and the word is sure. Guys, I want you to hear this. This is so powerful. God behind the scenes from all of redemptive history. He used the time of judges to show our need of a king. He used the time of prophet to show our need of a prophet. He used the time of priest to show our need of a priest. And they all failed. Prophet, priest, and king. They all failed because there's only one who can fit all three roles perfectly. And his name is Jesus Christ. He's our prophet. He's our priest. He's our king. He's the very way for us to know God. He's our very means and mediator to God. He's our priest. He's our prophet. He teaches us what it means to be covenant, promised people to God. He's our prophet and he's our king. He rules and he reigns. And by his death upon the cross, he provided a way for us to be in relationship with God. Guys, King Josiah is just a sign, just, a, just a one person as we look at. He gives us, teaches us so much, but ultimately he points us to Jesus. And if you're sitting here today, and if you don't know Jesus as your prophet, priest, and king, if you don't know what it means to have him as your savior, if you don't know what it means to know that you can ultimately be known all to purpose, to have a relationship with God that you're meant to, I want you to know that today, today you can know this because of the work of Jesus. So my people, I always say this. At Waypoint Church, we promote this idea, we live in this idea of this reality that we live in a win-win. But because of the work of Jesus, we can face every day on this earth, assured that even at the worst of times, that our citizenship is in heaven and our future is secure. So may we live in this reality, may we live in this comfort that the word of God is evidence of God working behind the scenes and the erring word of God gives us solid assurance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of King Josiah and your work in redemptive history. God, as we look at the story of the kings of the Bible, as we see the story of the prophets and the priests, God, that they, they get pictures, they paint pictures of the coming Messiah, but they all fail. Because ultimately, they all pointed pictures to the one that was coming named Jesus, who is our ultimate prophet, priest, and king, who is the only means of salvation. So may we know him, may we confess him. Your word says, if we believe in our heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that we can be saved and we will be known by you. We have right relationship with God. So we thank you for the work and we thank you for the good news. May it transform us. May we be people like Josiah and Dave who walk in the way. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.